Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hello, good friends. Good to see you. And welcome back to the Bill Press Pod. You know, all right, I know we say this every four years, but damn it, this time it's true. Next year's presidential election is, in fact, the most important of our lifetime because so much is at stake. The fundamental question in 2024 is not about whether this nation goes right or left. The fundamental question is whether or not this nation survives, whether democracy itself will survive. Of course, many commentators and historians have issued that warning, but nobody more forcefully than Heather Cox Richardson, professor of history at Boston College. In her daily newsletter, and especially in her great new book, Democracy Awakening, she sounds the alarm about how much our democracy has already lost under the Supreme Court and Donald Trump, and how we will lose it all if, God forbid, Donald Trump ever won re-election. Her book is both an ominous warning and a spur to action which Heather Cox Richardson brings to us on today's podcast. Welcome. It's an honor, actually, to welcome you to the Bill Press Pod. I'm a big fan. I subscribe to your newsletter, enjoy it very much, learn something new about it every day. So welcome to the Bill Press Pod. Well, thank you. And it's such a pleasure to be here. You know, and I must say, I was so excited to see when President Biden was up on Nantucket last week and went out a little shopping. He walked into a bookstore and walked out carrying a copy of your new book, Democracy Awakening. Uh, Heather, that is every author's dream. Well, and, and <laughs> How'd uh, you feel about that? So, so here's the funny inside story on that. My family has a tradition, and it's such a nerdy tradition, but it's honestly fun, of every Thanksgiving evening we do, or the, the Friday afterward, we do something we call sip and learn, where people do a presentation on something that they know really well, that they think is interesting, that the rest of us would find interesting. Mm. So just as that picture came through, my photographer nephew was doing a presentation on AI and Photoshopping. So somebody sent that to me and I thought, oh my God, what are the chances that somebody would have sent me a Photoshopped picture just as my nephew is giving this presentation? And then another one came through and another one came Came through and another one came through and I was like, wait a minute, maybe this isn't photoshopped. <laughs> but it was, you know, I was probably the last person to think it was real because I, you know, power of suggestion, I assumed it was somebody had created that image to send to me for fun. Well, I'm glad it happened for real. And uh, watch out, the phone call's coming next, Heather, after the president finishes the book. I bet you, I wouldn't be surprised if he gives you a call. So yeah, I'm but, safe I don't answer the phone. <laughs> let, so let me take you, I, I really loved your book and I learned a lot from it too. Democracy Awakening. My, my take from the book was that, you know, there have been ups and downs, but generally, 
we've seen the growth and expansion of our, of our democracy from the days of our founders up to the time of Donald Trump when we started suddenly sliding backwards. Is, is, is that, am I right? Is that kind of the message here? Maybe a little bit overstated in that we certainly have in the past confronted moments that looked as if we were going to lose our democracy, which is where we are right now. But you're absolutely right to put your finger on what was, I hope, the 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 centerpiece of the book and the hopeful part of the book. And that is that from the very moment that the founders articulated the idea of equality before the law and a right to a say in our government, that marginalized peoples who were not included in that initial vision said, hey, that's a great idea. What about me? And right. as they have done that, they have expanded liberal democracy to, you know, to include more and more people. And that while on the one hand, we might lose our democracy, on the other hand, we might follow in the footsteps of that tradition and expand it once again. So do you see our democracy seriously threatened today? Absolutely. Hundred percent, thousand percent. Yes, mm. we are looking at the uh, an upcoming election that offers us a choice between current administration that is trying very hard to use the government to answer the needs of ordinary Americans in a number of ways that echo, as I say, our past, regulating business, providing a basic social safety net, promoting infrastructure, protecting civil rights. And on the other hand, we have the front runner for the Republican nomination, former President Donald Trump, quite articulately uh, saying that he would gut our civil service and make it loyal to him, that he would use the military against his political enemies, that he would silence the press with which he disagrees, that he would use the Justice Department against people he perceives to be his enemies. All of those things are hallmarks of an authoritarian government. And, you know, right now he is is looking like he's going to take the Republican nomination. And a, and a, a significant portion of Americans right now, anyway, say they would vote for him. Interesting that he is actually threatening to weaponize the federal government, right, against his political enemies, which is just what the House Republicans are accusing Democrats of doing. Well, and that's very deliberate. The whole idea that, you know, the, the construction of an idea of a Biden crime family is pretty clearly designed to distract from the fact that there actually is a Trump family organization that has, in fact, been found guilty of fraud and has has been in all kinds of, of legal trouble. You know, there is no Biden business. There is no, no, nothing that parallels what's happening on the right side. But this is one of the things that Trump has done so effectively. And, and, Republicans before him as well, is muddy the waters by saying, oh, you know, it's not just us. It's the entire system. It's everybody. So there's no difference between us and them. Therefore, you should vote for us. And, you know, it often works. Yeah, right. So what is it about this? There is this underbelly in America that finds authoritarianism attractive, right? We saw that, and you point out this in different instances, uh, in World War II, Joe Kennedy, Charles Lindbergh, you know, Mussolini was considered a hero in, in, by, by many Americans. And, and then Donald Trump, why, why in this democratic society do people find, uh, on occasion, it keeps coming back, authoritarianism so attractive? 
So one of the things, the points that I wanted to make in that book is that often when we think about authoritarianism in this country, we point back to fascism, which is really a concept that's articulated in the 1920s by Benito Mussolini of Italy. And of course, then he has an imitator in Adolf Hitler in Germany. But one of the points I wanted to make was people tend to forget that, for example, when Hitler tried to come up with a, a legal system to discriminate amongst his citizens, his lawyers turned to, of all places, mm -hmm. the Jim and Juan Crow laws of America and the indigenous reservations here. So I wanted to make the point that this isn't somehow a foreign ideology that got imported to the United States in the 20th century, but rather that it's part of a longer strand. And what I would say is that you know, people going to people, right? That's, that's just what we are. And that we, you, if you really step back, you can look at least at American society as a constant struggle between, on the one hand, people who believe that, you know, people really aren't equal, that some people are better than others. And, and they articulate this, by the way, we could go through that. And it's actually quite interesting, the different forms that that's taken through our history, but that they're better than other people and they have a right and maybe even a duty to rule everybody else. And on the other hand, you have people who say, no, 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 wait a minute here. We are all created equal. We have a right to be treated equally before the law, and we have a right to a say in our government. And those two strands have really been part of American history since the very beginning. Yeah, and I guess the question is, which one prevails, right? Do you, do you believe that our democratic institutions are strong enough to survive? Our democratic institutions have taken a terrible beating, not only in the past, in the four years of uh, former President Trump's presidency, but in the years before that. Because remember, of course, we have, ever since 1965 and the Voting Rights Act that, that empowered minorities to have much more access to the ballot, we've had people trying to stop that. We've had people attacking that consensus that, in fact, America should expand our democracy. So that's really been on steroids since then um, and really really since the election of Barack Obama in 2008. In 2010, we get Citizens United, the decision of the mm -hmm. Supreme Court that says that it's okay for corporations to pour money into our legal system with, I'm sorry, into our electoral system without us knowing it. And then in 2013, we get the Shelby versus Holder decision, which begins the process of gutting the Voting Rights Act. So those institutions have certainly been under attack and they have not Many of the things that we thought were law were, in fact, norms. But all that being said, I always like to remember that those institutions were created by the American people, and they are an extension of us. And have the American people ceased to care about those things? I think not. I just think that they have not had articulated for them or articulated themselves for really since the 1960s, and I can explain why I picked that date, how very important it is for us to uphold the rule of law at home and a rules-based international order, both of which were, you know, very central to the concept of the United States after World War II. And today we have a Supreme Court, right, which seems determined at least five, maybe six members to, uh, starting with the Dobbs decision, to roll back rights that have been achieved in this de 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 movement toward expanding democracy rather than expand those rights. 
So it's interesting exactly what you point to, the Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health decision of June 2022, which uh, overturned the Roe versus Wade decision of 1974 that recognized the right to abortion as a constitutional right. That's the the Dobbs decision was the first time in our history that a previously recognized constitutional right was no longer recognized. The court tried to take away a right that had been recognized as a constitutional right. And if you look at what's happened politically since then, you know, I think for a lot of Americans, they didn't get terribly involved in politics because it seemed to them that the rights and the rules that had been in place since World War II were going to hold. You know, and you hear this all the time, people saying, oh, they'd never take away my Medicare. They'd yeah, never yeah, take away Social yeah. Security. Because we think those things are written in stone. And I remember teaching 30 years ago, and students saying to me, oh, they'll never get rid of Roe versus Wade. Well, the Dobbs decision said, oh, wait a minute here. Yes, you could actually lose everything. And I think that we are finding, and historians will make this even clearer, that the Dobbs decision was certainly about women's health and certainly about their access to, you know, to the economy and all the many ways in which abortion is important to a 21st century country. But I also think that it will be the recognized as the moment that Americans woke up and said, hey, we could really lose everything. Mm. And I think this makes this a, this a game-changing election and makes the Dobbs decision a game-changing part of that. Particularly when you have Clarence Thomas saying this is only the beginning, right? There's some other things we ought to look at and maybe roll back, uh, and they've been very upfront about that. To, to what extent uh, in this whole push-pull between democracy and authoritarianism, it, to, to what extent does race play a part? So race has always been America's wedge issue, always, because what it does is it enables authoritarians to divide that popular consensus that the government should work for ordinary Americans. That is, and this is really visible at times like during Reconstruction, but you could also point all the way back to Bacon's Rebellion, for example, in early Virginia, in which uh, formerly enslaved African Americans and poor whites who had been forced onto the frontier actually began to work together to fight back against the Eastern government of Virginia. And after Bacon's rebellion, there are, there's a really deliberate concerted effort on the part of Eastern wealthier Virginians to drive uh, a real legal wedge between black Americans and white Americans who are either enslaved or indentured in that, that earlier system. And we get the specific rise of black community that is really differentiated by law from mm -hmm. white Americans. So all the way back there, before even the establishment of the United States, you can wow. see this is a wedge issue. But it really gets teeth in the United States during Reconstruction, because what happens during the Civil War, people sometimes forget that one of the things we get during the Civil War is a government in the United States that works for the benefit of ordinary Americans. You know, we get uh, colleges, we get uh, the Transcontinental Railroad, we get 
the Department of Agriculture, which you may not think matters, but it sure matters in an agricultural economy when in order to get seeds, you have to either have a father in the business or you have to have uh, the government provide them for you. You get a lot of things like that. You also get the first income taxes. The Republican Party is the party that invents income taxes in the United States and a graduated income tax beginning in 1861. And what happens is after the war, when that government begins to protect the black Americans that it has um, uh, legally ended the system of human enslavement, so the black Americans are now free Americans. After the war, what happens is that people who are adamant that black Americans should not have rights in the United States begin to make the argument that a federal government that actually protects black rights through things like the what becomes known as the Freedmen's Bureau, which is administered by the U.S. Army, or by the Department of Justice, which is established in 1870 in order to protect black rights, that those things cost tax dollars. So what they begin to say is that this government that's doing all these things that all you poor people, including primarily white people, really like, mm-hmm. what it's really doing is transferring wealth from white taxpayers to undeserving black Americans. And it's as early as 1871 that those white former Confederates who don't want to have black rights recognized in the United States begin to use the word socialism. Mm. It's, in, it's that early. People think it's in the 20th century, but you can do a search of the word socialism in any newspaper from 1871, and you'll see the use of that term goes off the charts. So as early as that, you're seeing the idea of a government that responds to the people, you know, government of the people, by the people, for the people, can be divided along race lines because of the United States' peculiar history of human enslavement. So it's got a really long track record. And I think you can, you know, I just gave you everything from Bacon's Rebellion <laughs> through here to yesterday or or the day before when former President Trump complained that the Democrats were, were enthralled to black Americans who were also the far left Marxist communist socialists. That's language that has just sort of the this long historical trajectory on steroids. I thought um, one of the things, of many things that struck me in the book, I had never seen this quote before that you quote Lyndon Johnson turning to his young aide, Bill Moyers, at the time. They were in Tennessee, and they had seen signs, racial slurs on signs in in Tennessee, and Moyers was a little surprised. And Lyndon Johnson said to him, and I'm, I'm reading right here from page 39 in your book, quote, Here's Lyndon. I'll tell you what's at the bottom of it. If you can convince the lowest white man he's better than the best colored man, he won't notice you're picking his pocket. Hell, give him somebody to look down on and he'll empty his pockets for you. Isn't that kind of the heart of the problem that we see today? Yeah, good old Lyndon. Boy, he had a way with words. And so, of course, (laughs) Does Bill Moyers, but but there's also something crucial in that, and that's the beginning of that quotation where he says, "If you can convince," 
because mm-hmm. that's not the only strand in American history. We have that opposite strand as well throughout the same period, including, you know, again, let me take the Civil War. One of the reasons that white Southerners were so unhappy, and not all white Southerners, by the way, but of course, the ones who were in control of the political system, one of the reasons they were so concerned about the United States and the direction that it was going in the 1860s was because black soldiers and white soldiers had enormous respect for each other. And that, you know, there's this period during the 60s when in the United States, in the North, you're seeing all kinds of of newspaper articles and speeches and, you know, the embrace of, at least for that time, a multicultural concept of the United States. Now, not everybody's included in it still. Indigenous Americans aren't, women aren't. But there is a breakdown of that particular racial barrier. And you'll see it, you will see it again after World War II, to some degree after World War I, but after World War II, when quite explicitly the return of black soldiers and Hispanic soldiers to the United States, where they are immediately confronted with Jim Crow laws and Juan Crow laws. And just, just to be clear, that's not just a problem of the law. That means that any rights are not secure. So, for example, one of the things that really turns Democratic President Harry Truman, who had a, you know, a racist history, to the protection of black rights was when Isaac Woodard, who is a U.S. soldier, comes back to the American South and a sheriff puts his eyes out for talking mm. back to him and then is acquitted by telling the jury that he has done so in self-defense, even though there were two of them and they were the ones with the nightstick and it was Woodard's eyes who ended up getting pointed, uh, getting put out. Truman says, you know, this is just wrong. This is just not, this, this, something is wrong when a soldier can lose his eyes without any legal recourse against the person who did it. So there is also that strand of the idea that when we all work together, we expand our democracy in ways that is beneficial to everybody. And that strand is also there. And the one that LBJ picks up when he says, if you can convince, because you yeah. have to convince yeah. people that race is more important than their own economic, social, and and, and family interests and stability. Right. We talked a little bit about race and its role. What about the role of religion? You know, um, one of my friends, Reverend uh, Jim Wallace at now at the University of Georgetown, has written that he believes white Christian nationalism is the greatest threat to our democracy today. How do you rate, see the, the role of religion, particularly, you know, evangelicals, if you will, in, uh, in this democracy versus authoritarianism debate? It's crucial. Of course, it's crucial. But, but, because nobody ever asked me that question, let me kind of take it back a little bit. Mm-hmm. So one of the problems with the current day is that, and I'm going to start from the present and move backward, is that really since Biden took office, so this is largely post-Trump, the evangelicals who so support Trump have taken the Republican Party and they have wedded it to Christian nationalism. So, yeah. for example, if you look at Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, what you're seeing there is not Reagan Republicanism, the idea of a small government that stays out of the way of market forces. What you're seeing is somebody who wants to use a strong government to force businesses to 
to adhere to his version of Christianity. That is not recognized LGBTQ plus rights, you know, not recognize the, right, the constitutional right to abortion, all of those sorts of cultural and religious issues. So, so to move backward, first of all, the Republican Party has shifted. But the Republican Party got involved with evangelical Christians beginning, of course, right before Reagan was elected. But it really takes off in 1986 for a very specific reason. And that's that by 1986, the Reagan Republicans recognized that their tax cuts and their cuts of regulation, which meant uh, cuts in basic social services, were not popular. And they needed to find more voters. And one of the places that they could find more voters was by marrying themselves to the evangelical Christians of the of that period who really disliked the idea of women's rights. We forget that that's a really big part of it. And who disliked the, the what they called the disruption of traditional roles in American society, including race lines. So you have the Republican Party grabbing hold of the evangelical Christians who had until then in the 20th century, generally, really broad brush here, stayed out of politics. Right. This is yeah. where they become political. All right, so so there's a a longer and more an interesting history about the role of evangelical religion in American society that I'm going to spare you with right now because I suspect <laughs> all your listeners are asleep. But it's really interesting. But one of the, to to go forward to this moment, one of the things that jumps out to me right now that I'm really interested in is that people tend to forget in the late 19th century, we had a movement like this and they tried to add an amendment to the constitution to make America a Christian nation. And they failed miserably, but, th but it was a real fight. And we have these fabulous speeches from people in Congress saying, no, you, we're not a Christian nation. Okay, maybe I'm Christian, but I've got people in my district who are Muslim and we're not going to go that route. On the heels of that, what we got was the rise of what was known as the social gospel. And yep. that was a different kind of Christianity that emphasized uh, taking care of people, that emphasized the social web, that emphasized the idea of, you know, a government and a society that took care of everybody. And the reason I'm interested in that in that right now is because of the influence right now of Sean Fain of the UAW, who mm -hmm. was the, mm -hmm. the union leader. He is a Christian. He made a lot of his arguments for the the con the union contracts based on his Christian faith. And I'm wondering if we're seeing a similar shift. Mm. Uh, you're seeing it in a new in a new memoir out by somebody who has taken exception to evangelical Christianity. I'm wondering if we're seeing another shift like that in this moment, which would mirror the political and economic shift we're also seeing going on. Oh, we can bring Reinhold Niebuhr back, <laughs> whom I studied and, uh, and admired. Moral man in immoral society. Before we take a break, people complain about Joe Biden doesn't have a clear message on a lot of things. I think he's done a great job, but or he's doing a great job. One clear message I think that Joe Biden has is he is a defender of democracy, both at home here and, of course, around the world. How do you see Joe Biden's role? Uh, in, in this democratic movement, if you will. I think he's leading it. The, the thing that really surprises me is exactly what you just said there. And you're not the only one to say to me, you know, 
somebody actually called me and said, you know, we don't understand why you're always talking about democracy and the administration never talks about it. Why aren't they pushing it? And I said, you know, I'm gobsmacked over here because literally the administration talks every single day about democracy, about how what they are doing fits into democracy, both at home and abroad. And and there was a recent piece in uh, CNN by a former foreign affairs reporter who said that really Biden's embrace of democracy and defense of democracy overseas has been inspirational to other countries who felt like they were on the ropes, including our our partners in the North Atlantic Treaty Organization or NATO. And I, I, I think when you, know, when you think about the Biden administration, love him or hate him, he has been a transformative president from the previous 40 years that suggested that somehow capitalism and democracy always went hand in hand. And therefore, what Americans really should push is capitalism. We have learned, in fact, by looking at places like China, that that's not the case, that it's actually quite easy to divorce capitalism and (laughs) democracy. And Biden has been the one who is trying to pull those things back together and remind people that America stands for democracy. So I think he's been actually incredibly important. So much to talk about. I'd like we need to take a quick break here, if we can, Professor. And uh, when we come back, uh, we've talked a lot about your book, Democracy Awakening. You also, of course, uh, put out a great newsletter every day, Letters from an American. And let's talk about some of the issues you've been covering in your newsletter here after a quick break. We'll be right back. And today's podcast with Heather Cox Richardson brought to you by the United Food and Commercial Workers Union. Uh, Good men and women of the UFCW under President Mark Perrone, they are the people who serve us every day in our great big retail stores, uh, you know, like Macy's and Nordstrom's, in our great supermarket chains like Safeway and Stop and Shop. Uh, they're the ones also who run our chemical plants that keep going, our chemical plants, our poultry and meat packing processing plants, our cannabis plants, serving the American public every day, the members of the UFCW. We thank them for their great work, thank them for taking good care of us, and thank them especially for their longtime support of the Bill Press Pod. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset, hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. 
Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And we're back with today's podcast. Our guest, Heather Cox Richardson. She is a professor of history at Boston College author of the newsletter, Daily Newsletter. Sign up for it. I have. You will love it as much as I do. Letters from an American and author of the new book, Joe Biden's favorite called Democracy Awakening, Notes on the State of America. So, Heather, let's start with, um, you've talked recently, I'm just looking at the last five or so newsletters, uh, about Ukraine and Joe Biden's efforts to continue U.S. support with Ukraine. How did the Republican Party of Ronald Reagan end up being the party of Vladimir Putin. <laughs> it's crazy, isn't it? Yeah. It really is. I mean, you know, part of where we are right now, don't you ever stop back and just say, can you believe we're living in 2023? Only about 20 times a day. <laughs> it's crazy. I mean, because, you know, you get so into the weeds and you see the pieces moving and all that. And every once in a while you step back and go, really? Like, really? <laughs> so I think we got here. And I think that Ukraine is an important extension of that by one of the things that I tried to identify in Democracy Awakening, and that is that the Republican Party has managed to garner power really since the 1960s, but taking off with the election of Ronald Reagan in 1980 by dividing the American people. And and somebody said, that, you know, that this was, you know, this this proved I was a shill the other day. And I would, would huh. simply say that there is literally a memo from Pat Buchanan to Richard Nixon saying that this is what they should do. And of course, then <laughs> Nixon's vice president, Spiro Agnew, did, a, did interviews on it in which he said, yes, this is positive polarization. That is, divide the American people so that the, our people turn out to vote for us because they're afraid of their people. Well, if he was talking that way in the 1970s, that idea of demonizing the enemy as in the, the Republican Party demonizing the Democrats, has gotten to the point where there are, as you know, literally people who are saying that even though they think that Donald Trump is unfit for the presidency, and even though they think that he's going to be a dictator, they still think he's better than a Democrat. So, so one of the things about uh, about that, I think if you look at 2016, and of course there's a much bigger story here about political science and about where Russia was in 2015 and 2016. Right. If that meant accepting help from other places, especially help that theoretically couldn't be traced, although of course we have seen that it was, why wouldn't you do that? I mean, if you are literally going to be saving the United States from those horrible enemies, why mm -hmm. wouldn't you be doing that? And yeah. I think that's what opened the door in 2016. And one of the things that opened the door in 2016 for help from Russia and the fact that Americans seem to think that that's a myth always just shows how powerful Trump was in pushing his agenda. Because, of course, we have everything right down to the Republican-dominated Senate Intelligence Committee report that basically says, yeah, the Trump, the Trump campaign was working with uh, Russian operatives. Mm -hmm. um, but from that, you get the idea that it's not about the country any longer. It's about staying in power. 
So the fact that the Republican Party now, members of the Republican Party, not all of them, it's mostly in the House, are turning against aid to Ukraine, which is truly astonishing on any number of levels, not least because essentially at this point, the Ukrainian people are standing between Europe and Russia and taking all of the the blood and death and destruction on themselves. The idea that they will back away from that, I think, comes down to the fact that Biden's handling of the Ukraine crisis was exemplary and they don't want to they don't want to support him they don't want to stand behind yeah. that they would rather say we're going to cut ukraine loose and it's going to turn into an even worse situation than it is and vladimir putin's going to make inroads than to say yeah we'll let biden have a win yeah right if biden's for it we're against it even if that means we're siding with vladimir putin go figure you also in the news that i have been tracking progress or lack of progress in this Middle East conflict between Hamas and Israel. Do you believe with some people that there may be a silver lining to this cloud, that this could be what it takes to convince people that a two-state solution is the only solution? Let me say this. I have no way to predict the future. But what I am trained to do is look at what people have done and what they are trying to do. And so one of the things that jumped out to me from the very beginning is, once again, one of the great things about living in this era is that the Biden administration is very open when it can be open. And they were really clear about what they were doing from the very beginning, because of course, when Hamas broke the ceasefire on October 7th, that was unexpected in a lot of different ways. And it was a, a crisis that was thrown onto the table for the United States, which is an ally of Israel, but obviously not a dictator of Israeli politics. And we know full well that Biden and Benjamin Netanyahu do not like each other. Netanyahu is a Trump figure. He's somebody who was in real trouble in his own country for pushing very right-wing reforms. So all of a sudden, Biden's got to do something. And what he did was, was really interesting. He came out and made it really clear that the United States was sta standing a thousand percent behind Israel. And he was very clear about why he was doing that. He said, we do not want anybody else to get involved, very clearly referring to Iran. And if you remember, both he and Blinken said to anybody else considering getting involved, don't, don't, <laughs> right. don't, yeah. right? And I, I just find it so interesting how many people have missed that because that, that, that was the first thing that needed to happen was not to have that crisis spread mm -hmm. because we could literally, you know, if, if Israel got involved with Iran, the United States was involved, right? right. Which, which Biden is very not keen on sending American troops anywhere. So then, though, if you've looked at the language that they both Blinken and Biden and the CIA director and the and the, the the coordinator we have on the ground, they were very clear again that they were trying to keep Israel under Netanyahu from destroying Gaza to the degree that his right-wing coalition wanted, at the same time that they were trying to get aid to the Palestinian people. And very, very early on, they began to say two-state solution. 
which is something that neither Hamas nor Netanyahu have supported. So they've, they've been talking about it and talking about it. And crucially, so have other Arab countries, which is huge because in the past they have not always supported that. So is it going to happen? Like, I'm no fool. I can sit there and say it hasn't happened for a long time. And there's a lot of people that would have to be moved around. And, but, but what I also can see is something else that the Biden administration is saying, which is what I study. I mean, I don't know these people personally. I know them on paper. Mm-hmm. Is if we don't do that, we will never get out of this doom loop that we're in. And there are ways that it could be accomplished. So is it going to happen? I don't have any idea, but I do think it's crucial to recognize that that is something that the United States has absolutely thrown its weight behind. And it's not at all clear that that Israel and Hamas are on that team, but it is clear that other major regional partners are. So uh, I want to end with a question that I get all the time. I got it as recently as last night talking to some people, uh, and I'm sure you get all the time. Uh, these are troubled times. We've got a lot of divisive issues facing us uh, that we're trying to deal with, not to forget about crises abroad as well. But the question is, through it all, uh, particularly you as a historian, are you an optimist or a pessimist about how things are going to turn out? One of the things that I always like to emphasize is that the future is unwritten. You know, it's very easy to feel as if you are locked into a pattern that can't be changed, but it can be. The future can always be changed. So I worry like everybody else does for sure. But I also look at the reality that when challenged in the past, Americans have turned up to defend their democracy. And I look at this moment, which looks so much in so many ways like the 1850s, when ordinary Americans said, no, we're not going to let an an oligarchy of elite slave owners take over our country. We're going to stand up for democracy. Even though they were only propertied white men, they took back the country for democracy. Or the 1890s, when the populists did something very similar, saying, you know, the both parties in that case had been taken over by the robber barons, if you will. And they said, we're going to take our country back. Or if you look at the 1930s, when Americans elected Franklin Delano Roosevelt and supported him, even in 1936, when there was such a move against him. I look at those things and I think we're in an era when people of color and women have political voices that they did not have in those earlier eras. And they are using those voices. And there is absolutely no reason that we have to go down the road to authoritarianism. And if we choose not to do that, think of what we can create. So the future is bright, I believe. I hear that in your voice. I remember, by the way, asking uh, Madeleine Albright, uh, the great Madeleine Albright, that question. And she said (laughs) she defined herself as an optimist who worries a lot. I thought that was... Oh, I love that. (laughs) Great way of having it. Heather Cox Richardson, I'm a huge fan. Appreciate your work so much and doubly appreciate your joining us today on the Bill, Bill Press Pod. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for your great work. And we will keep in touch and keep reading you and um, live a better life because of it. Thanks, Heather. Thanks for having me. 
And that's it for today's podcast with uh, Professor Heather Cox Richardson. Again, there'll be a link in the episode notes to today's podcast for you to get your own copy of Democracy Awakening. Again, if President Biden bought it, you can buy it and all of us can read it together. Now, this week, big week coming up, uh, the Senate and the House trying to decide again to come to some agreement on funding for the war in Ukraine, keeping that funding going. And this week, the House has scheduled a vote on an impeachment inquiry for Joe Biden, even though they still don't know why they want to impeach him. All of that we'll take a look at, round it up on Friday with our Reporters Roundtable. So have a great week, everybody. Uh, And then come back and see us on Friday for the next edition of the Bill Press Pod, our Reporters Roundtable. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.